Hi, welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. My name is Eli Ayala, founder and host of Revealed Apologetics. If you've been blessed by the content of this podcast or the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, please consider supporting us. You can support Revealed Apologetics by generously giving at revealedapologetics.com. Choose the donate button and give either through PayPal or Venmo. Or you can simply write a brief review of the podcast on iTunes. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you're interested in having me speak at your event, you can connect with me by filling out the contact info on the Revealed Apologetics website homepage or simply email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're interested in signing up for my online apologetics course, information on Presup University can also be found on the Revealed Apologetics website. Folks can sign up anytime and the course content will be sent to them. Once again, thank you so much for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. Uh, I just want to start off uh, with a brief apology. If you guys have noticed, I've been missing in action for uh, the past three and a half weeks. Uh, I came down with the virus, okay, and I felt its full uh, its full wrath, its full force, and uh, it wasn't fun. Uh, I felt uh, all uh, the wide range of symptoms. Uh, the only thing that I did not experience, which I was very grateful for, was the loss of taste. So while I was uh, <laughs> writhing in pain and agony, I was still able to enjoy, uh, you know, food and, and things like that. But um, uh, it was uh, pretty bad. It was only uh, by the grace of God and some ibuprofen that I was able to uh, <laughs> survive the ordeal. My wife was was so helpful and uh, she was there for me every step of the way. And um, and so now this is really my first day uh, back at work. I was able to go back to work. Um, I'm a teacher. And so I, I was there for the first day of work. The, oh, the first day when I met with my students to say, hello, let's go over the syllabus. And then I haven't seen my students for two weeks since then. So uh, this is my first my first day back and my first evening back doing uh, Revealed Apologetics. So I just want to thank everybody, um, Facebook friends and things like that, who have been keeping me in their prayers, my family in prayers as well. My family had um, the virus as well, and, and they were able to recover. And so... Um, yeah, I, I'm very grateful for for everyone who's kept us in uh, your uh, our prayers uh, or kept us in your prayers, um, and I just want to say uh, thank you for the support and and all the support of of those who uh, subscribed to Revealed Apologetics. Last time I looked, I think we're at three thousand two hundred and thirty something subscribers, um, and uh, I appreciate every single one of you. Whether you agree with my position, the content that that I put out, um, I do uh, appreciate um, your support in, in whatever form that it comes. And so, um, with that said, I, I'd like to say, um, I'm glad to be back. And, um, if I seem a little slow in my speech, I'm still kind of recovering. So I, I feel good. I'm ready for this discussion. Uh, but I, I do feel a little fatigued. And so, um, you know, Dr. Tony Costa is gonna, he's gonna do what he does and, and jump into some of these issues. And hopefully it will be of uh, great benefit to those who, um, are listening. All right. Well, um, I 
entitled this episode is Eastern Orthodoxy Orthodox. And I thought that was a fun way of uh, titling this, uh, this discussion that we're going to have this interview. Um, and there, it's no secret, uh, those who have listened to Revealed Apologetics, that I am not Eastern Orthodox. I, I'm actually um, uh, a Reformed Christian of the Baptist flavor, if I can put my theology in, in the context of ice cream flavors, right? I'm a, I'm the, a Baptist, a Reformed Baptist in the, the flavor of my theology. Um, and when we speak of orthodoxy, we speak of, uh, you know, when you, you take a look, for example, of the, the etymology of the word orthodoxy, it, it has this idea of, of being of the right opinion. Um, and of course, uh, this is related to um, our belief systems, you know, orthodox theology, what is the correct doctrine as it pertains to the essentials of the Christian faith? And um, those who study theology understand why orthodoxy, not Eastern orthodoxy, but the concept of believing orthodox theology is so important as it flows into orthopraxy, right? Right practice and right living. The way we live our lives is reflective, as Christians, is reflective of having a proper uh, theology. And so um, having correct doctrine is important and not perfect doctrine. I don't claim to have perfect doctrine, but having right doctrine in as much as the scripture reveals truth about these important distinctions that we're going to be talking about. I think it's very important to have a proper understanding of the gospel, having a proper understanding of the work of Christ. Um, and to that, as you ref as we reflect upon Eastern Orthodoxy, we can tip our hat off to many uh, within, within church history that has contributed to a clarification of certain doctrines that we all share in common. But of course, there are some dividing lines that um, I'm very excited to be uh, speaking with Dr. Costa about. There are these very important uh, dividing lines that I think need to be drawn as we want to uh, we want to conform our beliefs to that of the teachings of the Scripture. Now, every Eastern Orthodox uh, gentleman that I've um, had discussions with, um, there's always this idea of well, you know. All of your theological disputes between you and the Roman Catholics and things like that, we were so detached from all these things. And we've maintained kind of a, a, a faithfulness to uh, apostolic teaching. And, of course, they go through their various doctrines that, that they believe go back to the teaching of the apostles and, of course, uh, Jesus Christ himself. Well, well, real quick, before I invite Dr. Costa on, um, suppose, suppose they were, Eastern Orthodox Church was involved in uh, the Reformation. The issue would have most likely been the same issue. If you look in terms of the context of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and the the causes of the Reformation, where you where we make a distinction between the material cause uh, and the formal cause, and this issue of justification by faith alone, and and what was lurking under that dispute was the idea of sola scriptura. When you understand what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches and believes, it's ecclesiology, and you compare it to Roman Catholicism, there's differences, but there's important similarities that I think still is relevant to the Protestant and Eastern Orthodox differences. And I think that's an important issue to keep in mind, that our responses from an apologetic context is going to be very similar when we're dealing with the Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, person, as well as when we're when we're discussing um, things with a Roman Catholic um, individual. So I want you to keep that in mind. They're not exactly the same, but there are some similarities that I think are very important and very um, apologetic, apologetically relevant. 
All right. So uh, before we get into all those details, just a real quick announcement in terms of two guests that I'll be having in the near future. Um, I have just been informed that Dr. Michael Heiser is undergoing some health issues. And so I'm not sure if that will affect him coming uh, onto the show. Um, I'm going to be reaching out to Dr. Heiser to see how he's doing and hopefully he's doing well. And, and I'll see where he's at in terms of whether he's able to do the interview um, on our scheduled date. And I also am going to be having Dr. Matthew Barrett uh, to come on and discuss issues of sola scriptura. And, and I want to be on this kind of reform theology, reformation principles sort of thing, because I think um, it is very apologetically relevant. And so hopefully you guys will appreciate uh, those sorts of uh, discussions. And to tip a hat to our presuppositional uh, brothers and sisters out there, um, all these are related to presuppositional uh, apologetics. Okay, the assumption of sola scriptura and the the ultimate authority of scripture are very important. So um, hopefully you guys can draw those connections and see the importance of uh, this sort of theology and how it relates to apologetic methodology. Now, real quick, I want to uh, show you guys this book I just got. Greg Bonson, and maybe some people who grew up in the 90s will get this reference. Greg Bonson is the Tupac Shakur of apologetics, okay? <laughs> now, if you know anything about Tupac Shakur, uh, he was a hip-hop rapper of the 90s, um, which I'm not endorsing his music. Uh, it's definitely not the sort of music that you want to listen to and have wonderful, beautiful thoughts. Uh, but when Tupac Shakur died, it, there were actually multiple albums that were released after his death. And so I remember even in middle school, I was like, how's he coming out with albums? He just passed away. You know, Greg Bonson apparently is coming out with a bunch of books uh, and he passed away in 1995. So um, I'm just joking around, but American Vision uh, has just put out uh, this book, The Impossibility of the Contrary. Without God, you can't prove anything. I um, mean, it's based on a series of lectures in which uh, Dr. Bonson uh, defends a presuppositional approach and goes into great detail concerning the transcendental argument for God's existence. Very, very uh, useful resource for those who want to get into uh, presuppositional apologetics. And of course, this is one book out of a series of three. Uh, there was one that came out before this one called Against All Opposition, Defending the Christian World you. Um, and there is another one in the series. I think it's a kind of a red cover. If you look on American vision website, um, called pushing the antithesis of which I have the old school, the old school version here, which is upside down. There we go. Okay. Which I highly recommend if you guys uh, really want to get your sink your teeth into some good presuppositional apologetics. All right. Well, I have some people in the comments now I'm ordering it right now. Yes, please order it right now. It's totally worth it. I've read all three of them. Well, actually, I haven't read the newest one, but they're based off lectures that I probably listened to a thousand times. So um, I highly recommend that. Also, I want to highly recommend Dr. Tony Costa's YouTube channel. If uh, And I always joke around in saying this, but I'm partially not joking. Uh, the fact that many have not subscribed to Revealed Apologetics and Dr. Costa's channel demonstrates the truth of total depravity. So definitely get yourself over to Dr. Tony Costa's YouTube channel. He has some great discussions and teachings, and he also teaches online classes as well. You definitely want to check that out. He is a great resource and an excellent teacher. Definitely very down to earth and can bring a lot of these technical ideas down to the average person, which I think is very, very important. All right. Well, I'm going to now get all that stuff out of the way, and I'm going to welcome Dr. Tony Costa on the screen with me. How's it going, brother? Hey, Eli. I'm doing well, and I'm glad to hear that you're feeling better. Uh, yes. I, I don't I, know if you want me to put my hand on the screen, and you could join with faith, and we could 
I could pray healing into your, oh, we're not going to do any of that. <laughs> if you call the number on the bottom of the screen, <laughs> we will send you There's water from the Jordan river. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Look at that. That is not, see, now that is not orthodoxy right there. That's, no, that's not, no, neither in the Orthodox <laughs> church or in the reformed churches. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, um, what have you been up to? I mean, you, you are a machine, man. You, you're on my show now, but you literally just hopped off someone else's show. So yeah, so I, I was with uh, brother uh, Jordan, uh, uh, Ravains, I believe it's pronounced, in the Philippines. So I was just in the Philippines there, and we were talking about uh, theology, theological approach to apologetics, and it kind of dovetailed with some of the things you were just saying, Eli, about uh, presuppositional apologetics. So mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to to talk about the difference between presuppositional apologetics and, and evidentialist apologetics, classical apologetics. We also touched a little bit on Molinism. So uh, that was a great, great show. But uh, yeah. Good. A, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, he's a he's a good brother. I think I've been on his show a while back to talk about he's very interested in reformed theology and yep. presuppositionalism and things like that. Yes, so indeed. Cool, cool. Very good. Well, yeah. well, let's jump right into into things. Uh, let, let's let's go over the simple question. Right. And then we'll dive into the detail. So uh, is Eastern Orthodoxy orthodox? Why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah. Share in ways in which it is orthodox and in ways in which, hey, there's some warning flags that we need to be careful yeah. about. Yeah, we need to define our terms, obviously. Otherwise, we're going to be equivocating. And therefore, we need to understand, well, what does the word orthodox mean? And I think you've already defined that as 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 the right teaching, true teaching, and so forth. <clears throat> and its corollary, of course, is orthopraxy. And when we talk about orthodoxy in Christianity, we're talking about the basically the, the fundamental doctrines that define Christianity, the, the the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone in the Reformed tradition, of course, and the bodily resurrection, the virgin birth of Christ, and and the 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 coming of Christ to judge at the end times, the new heaven, the new earth. All of these things are are considered those those creedal like confessions um, that have been encapsulated in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Nicene. Constant, uh, the Nicene Constantinople Creed of 381 and so forth. Uh, that's what we mean by Orthodox. Now, when we talk about the Orthodox Church, we're now talking about uh, a church, uh, let's call it for lack of a better word, a church denomination, a series of churches that are known as Byzantine. And Orthodox simply means that this church believes that it is the heir of the apostles and that it believes that it has maintained the true doctrine of the church through the infallible uh, seven ecumenical councils. Now, the, the Roman Catholic Church would also say they're orthodox, uh, even though they use the term Catholic, but they would also say they're orthodox. The orthodox would also say they're Catholic because they believe the word Catholic means universal, global. Yeah. But then Protestants can also use the word Catholic because they believe the church is global, it is universal. So we need to define our terms very carefully so that we don't end up, again, equivocating. So, so when we mean orthodoxy um, as, as Reformed Christians or Protestant Christians, we're talking about true doctrine and true teaching mm -hmm. and sound doctrine. Now, now there is some flexibility. Is it not the case that uh, within orthodoxy, uh, there there's some flexibility in terms of what we would call orthodox Christianity? For example, you and I are Reformed Baptist, uh, but we are not of the position that un unless you're a Reformed Baptist, you're not a Christian, right? Why don't you talk about yeah. the flexibility within the concept of orthodoxy? Yeah, I mean, the flexibility here says that 
we we believe that that salvation is the work of God and that we believe that anyone who has a vital living relationship with Christ and knows Christ as Lord and Savior in a in a in a transformative manner we believe they're they're Christians and so we're we're willing to say yeah there there are believers in the Wesleyan tradition there's believers in the Arminian camps um, it, can there be believers in in the Roman Catholic Church well yes but the reformers were all converted while they were still in the Roman Catholic Church. Luther was in there, Calvin was in there. But in due time, they they left because they just felt the tension between what they saw in Scripture and what they saw in those traditions. And there are examples of people, even in the Orthodox Church, who come to a saving faith in Christ. Some of my students at the Toronto Baptist Seminary are, are former members of the Orthodox Church who are now uh, Reformed Baptist. And then we have, of course, Cyril Lucaris, who can forget the 17th century Patriarch of Constantinople, Cyril Lucaris, who uh, went to Poland to uh, to uh, educate the Orthodox Church there against Roman Catholic uh, uh, proselytization that was taking place, and he came across these Protestants uh, who were of the Calvinist persuasion, and uh, and Cyril Lucaris wrote a confession that sounds exactly like Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he was the patriarch. He was a brilliant uh, Orthodox theologian. But if you read his confession, it's basically the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Mm. Uh, he was eventually uh, killed by by Muslim Turks and and his body thrown into the Bosphorus. Um, but but the point here is that here's a person like Cyril Lucaris, a patriarch no less of Constantinople, and and he came to the conviction of God's electing grace. He came to the conviction of of predestination and so forth, the doctrines of grace, and so. No particular church has a monopoly uh, on 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 those whom God will save. The Holy Spirit, the wind blows as it wills. You know, you don't know whence it comes, nor where it goes. And so we're not we're not saying unless you're part of this, you know, these four walls of this Reformed Church or the Presbyterian Church, you're not a Christian. So we do believe in in Augustine's. You know, there is the the mystical church, and there's also the local church. So we know that in the mystical church, God knows all His elect. The Lord knows those who are his. Um, but in the local church, as you know, it's made up of, let's face it, it's made up of genuine believers. And there's there's also goats in there. There's there's wheat and tares. So, and so, so you would you would equate local church with the, the language of the visible church and the mystical yes. church with the language of the invisible church. Correct. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so wh why don't we um, actually kind of uh, draw some uh, comparisons here? If someone were to ask you, Doctor Costa, what is the difference between um, Protestant Christianity and and um, you know what? Let let's compare uh, uh, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and then we'll throw Protestantism there into the mix sure. and draw some important distinctions. If someone were to ask you, uh, uh, Doctor Costa, what is the difference between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? How would you uh, draw out those differences? The differences ultimately have to do with with church authority. Um, mm -hmm. So in in up until 1054, which was the Great Schism, the 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 break between the East and the West. Um, up until that time, there was a there was an understanding of each other. There was this, okay, you're over there in Rome and, and you're over there in Constantinople. And there was this understanding that we could still get along. We, we don't like this papal supremacy thing. And we certainly don't like the filioque that you inserted uh, and the son into the Nicene Creed. Who, you know, how dare you do that without the formation of a council? Uh, but in 1054, the break came. 
And the break came because the Pope in the West, in Rome, the Pope sent a, a papal bull basically excommunicating the, the, the Eastern Church and because they wouldn't submit to the supremacy of the Western uh, Church, the, the papacy. So basically, the, the major difference is authority. Rome is based on a, a Pope who is one figure, the successor of Peter, over the magisterium, which is which are the the bishops are the successors of the apostles, the pope is the successor of Peter, and they oversee the church. The Orthodox Church, of course, rejects the papacy. The Orthodox Church is very very close to the Protestant churches in that it has affirmed from the beginning a collegiality of bishops, mm. that bishops are autocephalous or they're aut autonomous to their own local churches, and and while they do have patriarchs. Uh, the patriarchs are not papal in authority. Uh, the patriarchs um, um, are, are, are bishops at the very top, but they regard other bishops in a college, if you will, a college of bishops. And so okay. the saying amongst them is that the Bishop of Rome is first among equals. He, he is, he is uh, primus inter pares in Latin. He is the first among equals because of the prestige that Rome had. He's not mm -hmm. first among equals because he's better or higher or has more authority, but because of the honor that was given to Rome as the place of, of Paul and Peter's martyrdom. And Constantinople in 324, Constantine declared Constantinople to be the second city in honor after Rome. It was the new Rome. That's what it, that Constantine created, the new Rome. So... Um, it, it's it's authority structures are, are very different. Um, the liturgy is different. So, for example, the West moved towards Latin. In the year 200 AD, uh, Rome began to use, they used to use Greek in the Senate, but then they, they abandoned that and started using Latin. The East continued using Greek in the liturgy. So now you've got Latin and Greek, you, and you've got literally, they're talking past each other in many mm -hmm. cases which led to a lot of misunderstandings. Sure. Uh, the other problem, of course, is that the Eastern Church, their view of, of salvation was one of theosis, the, the idea that you, you, Athanasius said, God became man that man may become God. And so the Eastern Church believes that the ultimate aim of humans is to be divinized, not to become God in essence, but to become absorbed into the triune life of God. In the Western tradition, which saw the atonement in more judicial forensic terms, in the West, everything was about uh, the atonement meant that God had it was judicially removing the penalty of the law, which is death. And so the focus on the West was on Christ's atonement as a sacrifice. In the East, it was Christus Victor. Christ's death and resurrection was Christ's triumph over the, the, the infernal powers and you see that in the beautiful icon of the resurrection where Christ is breaking through the bars of Hades with Adam in one hand and Eve on the other, and he's taken out the Old Testament saints. Sure. So there is a difference in, in you know, the, the view of the councils. The seven ecumenical councils are well, in can, can I interrupt you? And I do apologize. I, I know no you're problem. on a roll. There's just so much there. No but uh, I think what people might find interesting is is this idea of, of, uh, of theosis. And you said that... Yep. Uh, 
man becoming uh, becoming like God and and how that's not the belief within Eastern Orthodoxy that man becomes divine, yeah. but it's very much rooted in what the Orthodox distinguish between uh, the essence and energies of God. Right. So, right. so that the essence of God is the unknowable element of his being, whereas his energies are kind of like, they correct me if I'm wrong, they compare it to kind of rays uh, yeah. of from the sun, right? In which right. God communicates to, um, uh, to his people and it's within those energies that theosis finds its culmination that believers participate in the energies right right okay. so think of it as the ontological trinity and the economical trinity the ontological okay. trinity is about the essence and so in, in in eastern orthodoxy the essence of god is unknowable and mm -hmm. and this is why many of the eastern fathers used what's called in latin we call it the via negativa the negative way uh apophatic theology is talking about god in what he is not. So God is immortal. He's not mortal. God is invincible. He's not invincible. God is immaterial. He's not material. It's defining God by using negative terminology, what he is not. Sure. So the essence of God, according to Basil and 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 others, especially Gregory Palamas, uh, who is the big proponent of this idea of the energies of God, um, is the view that the essence of God is unknowable. It's beyond, it's transcendent. Mm -hmm. And that God can only be known through His energies, and like you said, it's like the rays that that proceed from from the sun. So the way the Orthodox would describe that is that the energies of God is is the way the economical Trinity works. How how God reveals Himself through Christ, and then the Holy Spirit coming on the Church, and it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that that human beings, through the mysteries, the sacraments they call them mysteries, are brought into union with with God. So, so the incarnation is the pivotal point in orthodoxy. It's not the resurrection necessarily. It's the incarnation because the incarnation is God taken on human form. One person with two natures, divine and human. And so what they see in the incarnation is Christ is recapitulating creation back to himself. And in that work, he is raising humanity from its state of uh, disease and sin, raising them up so that they can be taken in, divine partakers of the divine nature, according mm -hmm. to Second Peter 1, 4, and thereby they are absorbed into the life of God. Now, to mm -hmm. Protestants, that sounds a little odd, but if you think of it among the lines of glorification, what we mean by glorification, sure. Sure. where we are finally perfected and, and so forth, we become like him, we see him as he is, mm -hmm. uh, partakers, not overtakers, but partakers, yeah. Uh, then, then glorification is what the East would refer to as as theosis. So, so, and and, and Protestants who are listening to the uh, concept of theosis might be tempted to uh, think of it in terms of something akin to uh, Mormonism, right? And that it's not the same thing. It, no. When you can you say that quote again by by Saint Athanasius? Yeah, Athanasius said, uh, "God became a man so that man may become God." But we can't right. just leave it at that. We need to let Athanasius define. What he means by that, he makes it clear. Right. It certainly does not mean that the creature becomes creator. The creature doesn't right. become God. Right. But the the creature, it, it, just as as it just as when God became man, he didn't cease to be God. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when when man becomes divinized, he, he doesn't cease to be human. He doesn't lose one form and then become another. And right. so in the view of the of the Eastern fathers, like like like. Uh, uh, Gregory of Nyssa and, and Basil and, and Athanasius, the view was that that in in theosis, what the West would call the beatific vision, 
the in theosis you become basically glorified you become absorbed into the the life of the triune god and you are perfected in that mm -hmm. in that state mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now now as a uh, again being protestant christians or western in in our orientation um would we would we agree with that in in a sense but utilize different language or yes. is there so we would agree with theosis, but use the language of the West to describe um, the process of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Correct. So when we think of glorification, what does the Bible say? Well, we are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. And so obviously there is a sharing that goes on there. And it doesn't mean God transmits his essence to us because sure. the only ones who share the essence of God are the, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But there is something that he shares. Christ will share his glory with us. Well, what does that glory look like? Well, that glory means to be united to him. If we are united to him in the likeness of his death, Paul says, we shall be united to him in the likeness of his resurrection. And that involves becoming immortal in the resurrection, immortal bodies, glorified bodies, incorruptible bodies, spiritual bodies. So what the West means by glorification, you know, the final state, is what the East means by theosis. It's just that, again, when we're using Latin and we're using Greek, you know the old saying, something's lost in translation sometimes. Sure, sure. And so, uh, and so they're, they're basically talking about the same thing, but they're using different language. Okay. So we're not used to hearing that this language. Sure. So sure. the Mormons, you know, the Mormon belief is that there's a finite God, and then he becomes a, a man becomes God, and then he 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 populates this new world, and then and, and then he sends his son, and then and then you become a god yourself. And that's not what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches, even though some Mormon apologists have tried to justify their view through theosis. Sure, sure. So you would say that theosis is orthodox. But it is often misunderstood because of the language that's used Correct. to describe it. Correct. Okay. Very good. And and I think that's a beautiful a beautiful concept uh, when we talk about, say, for example, partaking in the nature of God. Whether we're talking about it in categories of theosis theology or um, participating in the nature of God in terms of glorification, um, yeah. I, I want folks to understand that the, at this moment you need to step back from the intellectual discussion yeah. and stand in awe and worship of the idea that the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was in eternal relationship before time began and a relationship that is the most intimate relationship one can possibly think of. And God invites us into that Trinitarian relationship that has been going on from all eternity. I, this is why I think theology, and I know Dr. Costa, you would agree. Theology yeah. should produce worship. Once we understand the implications of these profound, uh, profound truths. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for clarifying. Let, that. let me add something, yeah, though, yeah, if you don't mind. If sure, I can just absolutely. add from second um, uh, from uh, from Second Peter there, from Second Peter one uh, and four there, it, it's important to also realize that in one four there, um, and um, and here I'm looking at uh, the uh, the Greek text here of uh, of Second Peter. He he points out here that this sharing that we're going to have, he uses the Greek word uh, theos. And that's important because the word theos there is, is the word that, that we get divinity from, div mm -hmm. divinity divine. And we need to be very careful here because it, it's not the typical word used of, of God's deity. Okay. The word deity, 
right? Uh, the word theotis uh, in Colossians 2.9, it, it only appears there. It's a hapoxlogomena. You know what that is, hapoxlogomenon. It appears only once. And the word theotis, Colossians 2.9, is translated deity. In him dwells the fullness of deity or the Godhead bodily. Uh, and in, in, in Romans 1.20, Paul says uh, that we could we we could see God's divine attributes. He uses the word, um, uh, uh, uses a different word, theotis. It's a different word. And so one has to do with, with essence. Theotis, deity, is essence. The other word, uh, and Peter uses that word here, theos, in, in the feminine form, it means divine. And so the word divine carries the notion of likeness, divine as in being like God, not the same as God. Doesn't, it doesn't mean having the essence of God. And so when God made man in Genesis 1.26, Orthodox theologians also focus on this. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so they look at that word likeness, and they see that as the template, if you will, the archetype of this thing called theosis. Mm. Very fascinating. Now, okay, so when we ask the question, if we can kind of rewind, we ask the question, what is the difference between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? It really boils down to the issue of the nature of their authority. Correct. So would you say that both EO, uh, EO, which a lot of people use for short, and uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, they have similar authorities with some important caveats. So for example, Correct. we would say um, that the authority within Eastern Orthodoxy is scripture and tradition, um, and um, uh, authority in Roman Catholicism is scripture and tradition with the specific caveats that differentiate them, papal authority and the magisterium and things right. like that. Would I be correct there in summarizing? Well, we need to be careful that in, in Orthodoxy, tradition is a single stream. So to them, okay. if you say, uh, is, it, is it scripture or tradition? they'll say it's both, it comes from one stream. And so to the Orthodox, God makes his, his grace, his energies known through scripture, tradition, those are one stream. And mm. icons and so forth are ways they believe God communicates his, his energies to his people and so forth. Whereas in the Roman Catholic Church, you do have the, this, if you will, think of a, of a three-legged three stool. You got scripture, you got tradition, and you got the magisterium. Okay. And so they would look at scripture and tradition as these, let's say, distinctive planks, but they're harmonious. <clears throat> In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's all one line. It's all one straight line. Sure. Okay. That's it. That's important to, to, to keep in mind. Thank you so much. Um, and there's some nuances. I mean, it's very interesting. It when, uh, I know a lot of people um, caricature Eastern Orthodoxy as kind of a popeless Catholicism, uh, but there is some important nuances there that I think differentiate them that I think is important to keep in mind, especially when we made reference to uh, Mormonism and how theosis is not like what Mormonism teaches. If we can just step aside for two seconds and acknowledge the important apologetic importance of properly understanding and representing a person's view. Okay. Correct. You're not going to get very far in a discussion with the Eastern Orthodox uh, gentleman or, or, or young lady or whoever you're speaking with. If you're equating the EO doctrine of theosis with, um, you know, this idea uh, that is expressed in Mormonism. So we want to make sure we properly represent uh, the side that we're engaging. All right. Thank absolutely. you so much for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now let's throw in uh, Protestantism. Okay. So, um, what is the difference between Protestantism and, well, I guess we'll, we'll pick, since Eastern Orthodox is our focus here, um, people should already know the main difference, but it's going to be very similar to what you said with some caveats. What is the difference, the key difference, between Protestant Christianity and Eastern Orthodoxy? Yeah, I would say that, it, once again, it all comes back to authority. 
Okay. In, in the Protestant, historic Protestant tradition, it is sola scriptura. It, it is the supremacy of scripture over all things. It's the final court, the Supreme Court. And it's not that Protestantism uh, eschews tradition. It doesn't. Uh, in fact, all the reformers appreciated tradition. And in fact, Calvin spoke highly of the fathers like Chrysostom and, sure. and others uh, and Augustine and so forth. And so in, in the Protestant tradition, we have scripture is the final arbiter the final court of appeal in all things, and that that the scriptures judge the church. In in the Orthodox tradition, it is there is no distinction between scripture and tradition. Uh, they're all one. They're, they're, they're one stream. And so in the Orthodox church, if you were to say to them, is it proper to venerate icons? And they will say, well, of course it is. Why? Well, because the Second Council of Nicaea proclaimed it in 787 A.D., Mm. Uh, and then if you say, well, what about the Bible? Well, you know, you've got to read John of Damascus and, and understand what he means by, you know, when the incarnation meant that Christ has divinized matter. And so that means that if we make icons, which are made of matter, uh, the icons have been divinized because in the incarnation, God became man. And, and, and even in his baptism, he blessed the material world. He blessed the waters and so forth. So th there's a very mystical view of, of this idea of the world's divinization in Christ. So are you saying that the icons that Eastern Orthodox use are exemplifications of incarnation, which was right. that important? Ah, okay, that, that yes, actually... Because, okay. because the whole idea of the icons is that uh, since matter has been blessed by the incarnation of, Christ, of God taking on flesh, then matter, since, since he saw fit to take upon himself a material body, the reasoning of John Damascus, for example, is that matter has been sanctified and therefore mm. matter can be used as a way of showing uh, God's grace and, 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 and depicted in the icons of Christ and, and the Theotokos, which is the title for Mary, the mother of God, and also the saints and so forth. Mm. All right. Very interesting. So, okay. So we have uh, the, the main difference really, which uh, again, this is why I said at the beginning, the central issue uh, between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy is really going to be this issue of authority. I mean, everything hinges upon the nature of our authority and dictates uh, what we're going to believe based upon uh, that authority. So let's dive into, uh, let's let's cast um, Roman Catholicism aside as, as it's not the central uh, focus of this discussion and really um, pit, if we will, the authority, the asserted authority of Protestantism and the asserted authority of Eastern Orthodoxy. At what point, Dr. Costa, does Eastern Orthodoxy start becoming unorthodox um, in terms of scripture and how the Protestant would defend the genuine authority of Protestant authority, right? As right, opposed right. to, because okay, it's these are authority claims. I mean, right, right. You guys are some people who might be listening um, who know certain Eastern Orthodox um, folks think along very presuppositional lines. And so they they know they're very familiar with this idea of ultimate authorities and how everything's viewed through the lens of worldview, things like this. But now you have Protestant asserted authority versus Eastern Orthodoxy asserted authority. And then now we have this very interesting thing, and perhaps you could address this. How might we deal with Eastern Orthodoxy through the context of a presuppositional apologetic approach? Right, right. So, so well, why don't you back well, that for it, it, Yeah, it is presuppositional on both sides because 
they both affirm a sola. Like we hear, you know, my Orthodox and Roman Catholic friends say, well, you know, you guys believe in sola this and sola that. And I said, sola what? Uh, and and uh, and, uh, and I love and, theology humor. That was that was well course. delivered. Absolutely. <laughs> and and so I I say to them, I said, look, you know, I believe in sola scriptura, but but you also believe in the sola. I go, what are you talking about? Is you believe in sola ecclesia? At the end of the day, what defines orthodoxy is the church. The church defines the church. In other words, there is a circularity to this argument. That why do we know the Bible is true? because the church defined it. Uh, what books, the canon, the, the books of the canon, who decided them? The church. Um, and where's the, where is the, the, the remedy for salvation? Where can we find salvation? In the church. Mm -hmm. you know, ex, in the West, they would say extra, extra ecclesium nalus salus, outside of the church, there is no salvation. Well, mm -hmm. the Orthodox church would hold to that view as well. Okay. Now, now, when we look at the Protestant view, but, but, but they wouldn't hold to uh, see when you say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when you say they hold to a sola ecclesia, that's not what they affirm. No, they no. wouldn't say that's what we hold. No, You're saying they would not. That, this, that one could make an argument that that is the logical conclusion of their authority correct. structure. That's okay. correct. Okay, that's correct. So, so in 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 the Orthodox position, it'll be we're the Church of the of the Apostles, we're the the, the ancient Church, and even that. Even that type of argumentation is suspect, and the reason why I say that okay. is there is a fallacy. There's a there there is a fallacy, uh, an argument from age, which basically says, well, because something is very old, it must be true. Mm -hmm. Well, on that basis, we would argue Gnosticism is true because the Gnostics the Gnostics were around very early. In fact, there were proto Gnostics in the first in the late first century. From the first letters of John, first letter, second letter, uh, the Colossians. You can the Gnostic heresy. Yeah, or the Judaizers, all right? Sure. We could say, well, no, those guys, those guys go back to the first century, you know, and because they're so old, they must be true. It doesn't necessarily follow that mm -hmm. because something is old or ancient, it, it must therefore be true. That's the first problem. Uh, the other problem is the moment you say, well, we know we're the Church of the Apostles because uh, we can trace our line, our bishops back to the Apostles. Well, I don't know if you know this, uh, uh, Eli, but the whole argument for the bishopric, the whole idea of the bishops and the apostolic succession was started because the Gnostics claimed that their bishops were descended from the apostles. Hmm. Well, this got Irenaeus and then Ignatius and then Irenaeus to start arguing for, no, our bishops can be connected to the apostles as well. Mm -hmm. And so there was this rivalry going on between the Gnostics and then, of course, the, the church. Now, here's where we got to be really careful. Because when we start hearing people say, well, we know that the apostles appointed these bishops in the Eastern Church. Take, for example, uh, Irenaeus, around AD 150. He tells us, this is the first time the word apostolic tradition appears in the Fathers. He tells us that he received this information from the apostles, that Jesus Christ was 50 years old when he died, that Jesus lived to 50. And he tells us so that, because the Greeks believe that that when you're 50, you've pretty much lived your full life. The, the recapitulation theory. Correct. So the theological uh, underpinning as to why he believed Correct. that as well. So instead of reading what was in Scripture, Irenaeus used his philosophy to define what was in Scripture. and mm -hmm. But he said he got this from the apostles. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know any Orthodox theologian, Roman Catholic theologian, Protestant theologian today that believes Jesus was 50 years old when he died. They mm -hmm. all put him in his 33... 30 to 33 range, not in the 50s. But if we're to trust Irenaeus, after all, he is a bishop. 
and he's a father. He claims he got it from the apostles. Well, if he did, why is it that no one holds to that today? Well, they mm -hmm. don't hold to it because it's not tenable. The Bible doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. Now, let's go to the Protestant, the Protestant tradition. The Protestant worldview is ad fontes, back to the fountains, back to the sources. And mm -hmm. what are the sources? The sources are the scriptures. And so <clears throat> what you and I want to do, Eli, is we want to say, let's get back to the source. What did the source look like? What did the church that originally received the scriptures, what did they look like? So when we read the New Testament, what do we read about the churches? They gathered, they kept the apostles' teaching, they prayed, they broke bread, they had the Lord's Supper together. Anything in there about incense in, in the worship service? No. Anything in there about uh, priestly vestments? No. Anything in there about venerating dead saints? No. There's none of that. And so the Protestant idea is we want to go back to the fountain, to the source. Mm -hmm. We're not really interested in, in what someone thinks in the second century. That's important, but it's not, it is not scripture. It is not part of the theanustas, the God-breathed scriptures. <laughs> if I can give a quick pushback then. So, so yeah. when you say, for example, as I was just speaking about this with my students, we were talking about the Protestant Reformation, and I was discussing with my students the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism being rooted in their uh, different authority structures. Uh, so you have scripture and tradition and the magisterium, the pope, and then you have sola scriptura, which is the, the foundation of Protestant theology. Um, when you say to a Roman Catholic, because when, when you ask, for example, what's the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, a lot of people who kind of dip their finger in theology and kind of know a little bit, uh, they will they will dance upon surface differences. Well, you Catholics, you're the guys who pray to the saints, or you're the guys who, um, you know, you know uh, pray to Mary. And while that's a true difference, it really gets down to the uh, the authority. So when, so when the Protestant says to the Catholic, hey, Mr. Ca uh, Catholic, Praying to the saints is unbiblical. Well, I mean, the Catholic is going to be like, so? That's only a problem if we assume the truth of your principle of sola scriptura. So uh, what you just said, when you said that the reformers are looking at the scriptures and they're saying, hey, what's going on here? We want to go ad fontes back to the fountain. Um, what's to keep the Eastern Orthodox individual to say, well, wait a minute. You think that's a problem that some of these things aren't found in scripture, but that's only a problem if you presuppose if you presuppose a principle that I, as an Eastern Orthodox uh, believer, reject, namely soul yeah. scriptura. Yeah. How would so, you interact yeah. with that? What I would do is I would interact with them by focusing on, for example, the language that is used in, in scripture. For example, first yep. Timothy, second Timothy rather, 316. So all scripture is theonostos. Theonostos means and it's traditionally in, in, in translated inspired, but its literal meaning is God breathed or God breathed out. The only literature that we have that is called Theonustas is the scriptures. The fathers of the church clearly distinguish their writings from the scriptures. They clearly point out, even uh, Athanasius said that in these scriptures, in these alone, that sounds like sola scriptura, in these alone are the fountains of salvation. And um, if you look at Basil, Basil the Great, he makes similar comments about the scriptures being the ultimate authority. And so when I talk to my Orthodox friends, I, I asked them, I said, are the fathers infallible? The other infallible. I said, where do the fathers claim that their writings are theonostos, that they're God-breathed? Mm -hmm. and, and Paul says, because these scriptures are God-breathed, he says they're, they are, they can do what? Well, 
they're useful to teach, to correct, to rebuke, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That certainly sounds like scripture is sufficient for the for the cause of building up and teaching and correcting. Sure. And, and, and so what I do is I simply challenge my Orthodox friends that Jesus have a high view of scripture, very high view of scripture, no doubt about it. He wasn't very keen on traditions that contradicted scripture. He had no problem with traditions that did not. I mean, there were certain Jewish traditions Jesus kept that were not biblically mandated, mm -hmm. but what he railed against was those man-made traditions that conflicted with Holy Scripture. And that is where, as Protestants, we would have to draw the line and say, uh, this whole idea of praying to the saints or praying to Mary and so forth lacks biblical support. There's nothing in Scripture to even insinuate that that is, that that is proper. But mm -hmm. what they will say is the church, the, the church owns the scriptures and the church interprets the scriptures and therefore tradition and scripture are a harmonious piece. They're not, they're not uh, contradictory. Mm -hmm. That's where we need to challenge that thinking okay. and show that, wait a minute, there is some conflict here. Mm. Okay. Well, well, I want to touch on that in, in just a bit, but uh, you made mention uh, a, a while back there about the argument from age. So like if something is old, then it's most likely, Hey, this is the view. Um, now I know Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox folks who argue along those lines, but I mean, I have to tip my hat off to the intellectual tradition of the, the Eastern Orthodox church. Um, there, is, there are brilliant minds uh, of the Eastern church and surely um, those who are in our modern context where Eastern Orthodox are, are aware uh, that um, that is not the end-all, be-all way to argue for the truth of Eastern Orthodoxy. Some of the, the, the best defenders of Eastern Orthodoxy are not simply arguing that because we're the oldest church, therefore that demonstrates the truth. Right. What really? sort of pieces of actual evidence and argumentation do Eastern Orthodox scholars point to to actually demonstrate the claims of their authority? Well, one of them is age. One of them is, I mean, the whole point why, why uh, Francis Schaeffer's son, Frankie Schaeffer, uh, joined the Orthodox Church, and now he's an atheist, apparently. Uh, but one of the reasons why he joined it was because he says that it is the oldest church, that, that it is the most antiquated church. And, and you do hear a lot of Orthodox folks use that argument, and they'll say that, you know, Protestants are just a byproduct of, of the Roman Catholic Church. They they broke off from from the Roman Catholic Church and so forth. You're you're you know you're you're these Johnny Come Latelys, and, and, and but we're the Church of of the Councils and so forth, mm -hmm. and and that is not at all to of course denigrate any of these great minds of the Eastern Church. I mean, Athanasius was the was was the great defender of Orthodoxy when the whole world was going Arian. Uh, he took a stand and and he was exiled several times and so forth. Um, and of course, uh, the, the writings of of John Chrysostom and 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 Basil and his great, the Cappadocian fathers defending the deity of the Holy Spirit against the Macedon the Macedonians. And mm -hmm. so, so I, I'm trying not to make a blanket statement here, but this is one argument we usually do hear, okay. especially in op apologetic dialogue between Orthodox and and Protestant, as if Protestants really have nothing to bring to the table because you guys weren't around until you know, 1500 years after after us. Uh, and, 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 and so we need to, in many respects, we need to um, take what is valuable and learn from that tradition. I mean, all of those councils, all of them took place in the East, all of them. And I see uh, Ephesus, uh, uh, Car uh, Constantinople, Chalcedon, all of these took place in the East. 
And, and, and these were great defenders of the faith. Now, were they perfect? Well, no. There, there's a debate about whether Cyril of, uh, of, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, uh, rather he misunderstood uh, Nestorius. That Nestorius ended up being exiled as a heretic. And, and, and Nestorius basically says, what they're saying I said, I didn't say. There's a lot of academic debate now mm -hmm. on whether Nestorius was actually a heretic or not. And then you take someone like Athanasius. I mean, Athanasius rejected the Apocrypha in his listing of the canon of the Bible in his uh, 39th uh, Easter festal letter, he he mentions the Old Testament books and, and he makes reference to some of these apocryphal books, but he doesn't classify them as scripture. But mm -hmm. today the Orthodox Church not only accepts the Apocrypha, but they accept extra books that are part of the Pseudepigrapha, mm. like 3rd Maccabees and 4th Maccabees. So I, I think we need to let the Church Fathers be the Church Fathers. And we got to stop putting them into a, a, a Protestant mold or we make them Presbyterians or Reformed Baptists or the Roman Catholics make them Roman Catholic and, and the Orthodox make them Orthodox. And so I, I would say that we need to let the fathers be the fathers, accept them for who they are, uh, warts and all. Uh, mm -hmm. The Protestant view is they were faithful men that God raised up, but they were crooked sticks like we we're crooked sticks. Um, and so we can glean from them much wisdom uh, and and appreciate that God used them at critical points in the church's history. Amen. I agree with that. I'm just going to give a quick shout out to Dr. Bob, uh, this $5 super chat. Thank you so much, Dr. Bob. I appreciate it. He says, enjoying Dr. Acosta's take, he should do a formal debate with Josiah Trenum on apostolic succession and the alleged defined character of the Episcopate. Yeah, there are so many different topics sure. to debate and, uh, you know, uh, I think I, 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 I don't know if, if, if Matt Slick of Carm is a mutual friend, are you? Are, uh, yes, you know, yes. Well, he, uh, you know, he he's often known for saying there's so much heresy, so little time. There's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, Matt's a great guy, and we we've dialogued, you know, we've dialogued on the phone, and we've mm -hmm. done we've done some work together in ministry. So yeah, he's a great brother. Yeah, all right, very good. The very right. slick guy. Yes, he's quick and slick. Very That's slick. A, yeah, <laughs> he he is. By the way, I've had some yeah, really fun conversations, and right when I try to corner him on some disagreement we have, yeah. he kind of he's he's slick the way he kind of. You can't you can't fight with that. You know that little voice that Matt has when he's <laughs> yeah he's got the radio yeah, voice. Yeah, that he doesn't have the radio face though. That's right. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> when I have him on my show, I have to put yeah. the blank yeah. the blank screen on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least no, it's he, not. He, uh, it's not. At least it's not the. You know, it's not the uh, Tucker Carlson. Like you know that. You know when they're speaking. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So so let's let's bring this in the context of. Um, let's throw the Protestant gloves into the ring for a moment. But before I do that, I want to encourage folks, if you have any questions about Eastern Orthodoxy, Sola Scriptura, uh, any of the Reformation principles that may or may not be directly related to this discussion, um, you leave your questions in the comments and just preface your question with questions so I could differentiate them uh, from uh, the normal comments and discussions that are going on in the comments. So uh, Dr. Costa will be more than happy to take some of those questions at the tail end of our discussion. Um, just to give you a heads up, Dr. Costa, Folks are really enjoying this discussion and Excellent. had a couple of comments. They said, hey, this is great information. Thank you so much. So uh, just throwing that out there. If you have a question, feel free to leave it in the comments. We'll get to them. All right. Now, um, 
you know, we can see the Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics kind of duking it out. You know, who's got the oldest tradition, who's got the true, you know, connection to the apostles and things like that. And us poor Protestants, you know, when we try to throw our gloves into the ring, you know, the, the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox folks, they just look at us and be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're like you said, you're you're Johnny come lately, right? You're uh, stepchildren. Like, you're you're just stepchildren. Yeah, you're like the redheaded step stepchild. Yeah. Like, you know, why are you even here in this yeah. discussion? Um, and uh it will often be claimed uh that nobody believed in sola scriptura before the Reformation, nobody believed in justification by faith alone, nobody believed what us Protestants are spouting. Uh you guys are um a a a branching off of the true church and you've gone the way of the multiplicity of denominations. You have nothing useful to bring to the discussion. How would you, Dr. Costa interject in the ongoing discussion and disagreements between the Eastern Orthodox folks and the Roman Catholics? How would you say, wait a minute, hold up. You know, when you guys say you're the oldest, that begs the question, because if justification by faith alone and sola scriptura are biblical, then we beat you on those. <laughs> so yeah. well, how do you yeah. engage in that? Well, well I, I teach a course at, at Toronto Baptist Seminary on, on biblical reliability. And what we do is we, we, look at some, <clears throat> we look at some of the early fathers and we show how Clement uh, of Rome and we show how um, many of the post-apostolic fathers, the anti-Nicene fathers, actually did speak about, uh, they didn't use words like sola scriptura, but sure. they speak of scripture as not only inerrant, but absolutely authoritative. Okay. Um, so for example, you take a, a Augustine, someone like Augustine, and Augustine says um, that if you find an, a presumed error in the scripture, it's not the scripture that's an error. It could be a scribal variant, or it could be our understanding is fallible, but he never attributes error to the scripture. That's very interesting. Um, and so there are a number of quotes from the fathers going before Nicaea and after Nicaea that affirm scriptural authority above the church. That is, we appeal to the scriptures as our ultimate authority. In terms of justification by faith, the thing about the Eastern Orthodox Church is there is a rich tradition embedded in the fathers of the Eastern Church that speak about justification by faith without works, um, mm. where they affirm uh, that we are saved by God's grace and that at the end we cannot appeal to our works as the means of our salvation. Mm. So obviously I can't do this in the time we have now, but I, I do have a, a PowerPoint with a lot of these citations from the fathers on, on the authority of scripture. Uh, there's a great book by Nathan Busnitz called uh, Before Luther. And in mm. that book, what 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 Dr. Uh, Businetz does is he traces from the, the Apostolic Fathers up until the Reformation, a consistency of arguments from the Fathers on things like grace alone, scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and so forth. Now, of course, you're not gonna find that language in there, sure. but, but there's a lot in theology. We use a lot of terms for things that we don't find in scripture. Trinity is not in scripture. Millennium is not in scripture and so Monotheism. <laughs> yeah, monotheism is not is not in scripture exactly, um, and 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 so when we use words, theological words, we're not assuming or presuming that these words are in the, the language of the fathers. But again, we need to also understand that not only did the fathers talk about these things, but let's face it, the fathers made some pretty big mistakes. You know, I think of Clement of Rome, and he talks about 
the phoenix as a real bird. And he talks about how every 500 years it goes back to its breeding place and then it it it, it dies in, in a flaming fire. And out of Wait, it, the out of phoenix capture. isn't a real bird? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Clement. He used it as an example of the resurrection. Okay. And he said that he believed that the phoenix was a real bird. And again, we, well, we know that that was just an Indian myth, it, it, mm -hmm. that the phoenix is not. But again, you got to understand, you're talking about, you know, early, late first century, early second century. You, a lot of this is you're hearing this. You've heard it from someone else. You're just assuming things. So at the end of the day, the only thing that 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 we can rest our hope in that is infallible and and inerrant, at least in the Protestant view, are the Holy Scriptures. Mm -hmm. And and if you glean, I mean, to read the fathers of the church, I mean, I got, I got, what is it? I've got uh, Robertson's collection here, and it it's thirty eight volumes. That's mm -hmm. a lot of literature. But when you go through the literature, you do find the fathers speaking about certain things, certain views of doctrine that accord with what the reformers would later call sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, and, and so on. And that the end of all things is the glory of God, soli deo gloria. Right. And that's a good argument not to, um, it's not a knockdown refutation of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, but it, it goes a long way of showing that what the Protestant is saying is not coming out, you know, ex nihilo in the 16th century. It, Correct. It, right. I, I think the, yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole thing with Luther was mm -hmm. that Augustine was teaching this. Yeah. Now, now the Orthodox, to the Orthodox, Augustine's in the doghouse. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're not. They're not big fans of Augustine. They don't wear the T-shirt. Uh, Augustine is my no. homeboy. They're, no, I mean, okay. no, no, no. He's not my homeboy. I mean, he's he's in the doghouse, and okay. and you know him and his retractions and everything. So they don't like him. In fact, they think he's responsible for a lot of the so-called corruptions of Western theology, like original sin, and and mm -hmm. and you know he questions the, the the whole procession of the Spirit from the Father alone and the filioque and all that. Um, but again, at, at the end of the day, while we appreciate the fathers as Protestants, we need to begin with a presupposition that if God is, is real and God exists, mm -hmm. then that would mean that any word or, or, or expression by which God would reveal himself would necessarily have to be infallible. It would necessarily have to be inerrant because it proceeds from him. And the only thing I, I know that is, is declared to be God-breathed, which Jesus himself and the apostles pointed to as both says the Lord, this is what the Lord says, is scripture, not the writings of Shammai or Hillel, not the teachings of the elders, but what God spoke. Hmm. Now, I, I hear this argument, and, and, and again, I, I'm not sure if it's used by, you know, more of the scholarly type, but in the popular level, uh, when a Protestant um, is having an interaction with an Eastern Orthodox uh, gentleman or, or whoever, um, it, it, you know, they'll say, hey, well, the scripture says, and the Eastern Orthodox person will say, well, wait a minute, we gave you the scriptures. <laughs> and usually a Protestant is, um, and this is something, and, and perhaps you could agree with this, uh, a lot, a lot of Protestant believers are, and I myself included to my own shame, uh, we're very uh, ignorant of uh, various important aspects of church history. I mean, my knowledge of church history go goes back from today all the way back to the Reformation. And once I go beyond the Reformation a little back, I start getting a little fuzzy on, on well, wait a minute, what did this person teach and who is this person? Um, so I would imagine, and I do apologetics, I would imagine the average Christian who doesn't. Um, how, how would the Protestant respond to the Eastern Orthodox fellow who says, we gave you the scriptures and they start right. 
quoting the councils and this person and that. How would how would you encourage right. someone to interact with that right. claim? Well, it is true that most Protestants think church history started in 1517, uh, and 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 that of course is 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 false. And and the way they speak of these reformers, you would think you're reading a, a book, a comic book of superheroes. Uh, <laughs> and they were not. They were they were broken men. You know, when Luther started in 1517, you know, with the the 95 theses. Luther was not thinking. It was the farthest thing from Luther's mind that he was going to start a new church and that right. he was going to break with Rome. He believed the Roman Catholic Church was the church of mm. Jesus Christ, even when he pounded that hammer away. He, he didn't become a Protestant there and then. But when the, when the Orthodox Church make this claim and the Roman Catholic Church make the same claim, my question to them is, also, is always this. Um, how would a Jew living in the third century B.C., how would a Jew living in the third century BC know that Isaiah was canonical? Well, there is no church at that time, obviously. There's nothing in the Old Testament to suggest that there was a rabbinate, a rabbinical court that determined what was scripture. There was no council of Jamnia in the third century BC. Well, how did the Jews know that, that Isaiah and Hosea were canonical? Well, if you read the New Testament, Jesus understood the tripartite division of the Hebrew Bible, you know, the Tanakh, the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, which he called the Psalms, the greater part of the writings. Mm -hmm. So by his time, we know the, the Hebrew Bible is, is arranged the way it is today. And so how would, how would a Jew know that Hosea was canonical in the third century BC? There was no church to tell them that, to, to guide him and to show him that. The people of God received these, these, these scriptures as God's word. They were confirmatory to their lives. Uh, Roger Beckwith, in his great book, the, the Canon of the Old Testament and the New Testament Church, mm -hmm. does an excellent job of showing how these texts were received uh, as God's word, not by any council or, or, or synagogue, um, and they were laid up in the temple uh, in the mm -hmm. time of Jesus. So what I would say is this. Um, Where's your evidence that, I mean, if the, if the Orthodox Church gave us the Bible and the Roman Catholic Church is saying the same thing, kind of got a problem because your Old Testament canons don't agree. Mm -hmm. so, so, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church canon, Old Testament, you've got seven extra books. And in the, in the, in the Orthodox Church canon, you've got the Prayer of Manasseh. You've got, you've got 150, you have the 151st Psalm. So we missed one. So they got the 151st Psalm. And then they've got, of course, Third Maccabees and Fourth of Maccabees, all of which are rejected by the Roman Church. Okay. So, so they can't even agree on that. Now, remember, the Orthodox Church is willing to say that the Roman Church is also an ancient church by the Bishop of Rome. But, but again, if you guys were 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 like this, at least before 1054, until that mm -hmm. final rupture took place, I mean, why don't your canons agree? Why is there disagreement among the, not the New Testament, but the Old Testament canon? Sure. So it's easy to affirm and state that, to say, yeah, the church gave you the Bible. You need to show that, prove it. Where where did, it, where, I mean, the Council of Carthage in North Africa accepted uh, First Esdras into the Old Testament, but the Council of Trent rejected it. Mm. So again, the Council of Carthage was a local church council, it wasn't ecumenical, but still, you will notice what Luther said in his famous defense before the Diet of Worms, right? What did he say? He said that 
my confidence is in the word of God, which cannot lie. Popes and councils have been known to contradict each other mm -hmm. and have done so. My conscience is bound to the word of God and I will not recant. Unless I'm shown by scripture or by reason, I will not mm -hmm. recant. So mm -hmm. I think the statement, uh, I think the they make the assertion, Eli, they make the assertion, but it's one thing to assert something. It's another thing to prove it. Sure. And so most of the time when I hear them, they're simply saying, oh, the church said it was it was, it was was scripture. When? When did it mm -hmm. say it was scripture? Um, the Council of Trent, I could see that, but the Council of Trent is, is not considered an ecumenical council by the Orthodox Church because they weren't there. It was a, it was a particularly a Roman Catholic council of bishops. Mm. So yeah. it's, it's just a, it's, it's basically an assertion, I believe, without any water. All right. Well, this is definitely uh, good information. <laughs> that's a good question to ask with respect to the Old Testament. Uh, that's very helpful. Now, um, when we uh, get back to the title of this episode, is Eastern Orthodoxy Orthodox? And we say in some sense, yes. OK, and we would we would applaud um, not just the fact that there's a lot that we agree uh, we can also applaud the brilliance with which many Eastern Orthodox thinkers have expressed those truths in profound ways, those points of agreement. But when we get to those disagreements, when we say Eastern Orthodoxy is not Orthodox, what are the key central unorthodox elements of the Eastern Orthodox Church and why are they, uh, are they issues that need to be dealt with apologetically yeah. by the Protestant? Yeah, I, I think the issue of justification by faith is 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 a, is a big one. Okay, not that they not that some of them haven't talked about it. They have, but it was never a central issue, because justification has forensic uh, ramifications, and and the idea is that the West was was more of a judicial, um, a judicial Protestantism as well, right? We yeah, use yeah, that of course, language, which, which well. is Western, right? I mean, the East never had a Reformation. They didn't even have an Enlightenment period, mm -hmm. so they never had to deal with these things. But in the Eastern Church. It's not so much justification, but that is a, a very important issue because, because the Pauline letters, you cannot go through Romans or Galatians without being confronted with the, the issue of justification. And also the question of imputation, which is rejected by the Orthodox Church. They don't believe in original sin. They don't believe that Adam's nature passes on to his progeny, that we are condemned in Adam, that mm -hmm. in Adam all die. The Orthodox Church would say, no, we're not, we're not, it's not imputation of Adam's depravity. It's imitation. We're imitating uh, Adam. We're diseased. We're not totally depraved. So th that's very important because the whole idea of imputation means that God has declared all those in Adam to be guilty. But in mm -hmm. Christ, he has declared us to be not guilty. He's justified us by faith. So orthodoxy has not really done a lot of work in this area. And this is crucial because when you look at their view of the atonement, it's not so much the atonement to them. The, the death and resurrection of Christ is the, is the idea that, that in the incarnation, God tricked Satan with a bait. And the bait was Christ's humanity. And mm -hmm. Satan believed that by destroying the humanity of Christ, he would have frustrated God's plan. But he didn't know about the resurrection. The resurrection was the surprise, the element of surprise. And, and therefore, it was. <laughs> and it was in many ways. But we agree with that. The West agrees with Christus Victor. We do mm -hmm. believe that Jesus was victorious. You know, it is finished. That's a cry of triumph. But we also believe in penal substitution, that Christ suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. That view is rejected 
by the the Orthodox Church in general, and so that that's a major issue. The whole idea of of praying to the saints or Mary. Um, the the interesting thing here is they would say we don't worship them, we venerate them, which I think is really a, a semantic game. The Bible doesn't use those semantic differentiations. When we say things like to venerate Mary is is proskunesis or it's 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 hyperdulia. That's not that's not latria. Latria is adoration of God. But in the New Testament, Old Testament, these words are used interchangeably about the worship of God. And and, and the 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 arbitrary way that Nicaea II separates these words, if you read the, the document of, of Nicaea II, um they don't back up those words with any scripture. It's mm. just an arbitrary statement of we don't worship. We venerate them. Well, here's the point. Think of it this way. Uh, think of it this way. When Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about the resurrection of the dead. He tells the Thessalonians not to be worried about those who've gone before them, who've died in Christ. Now, think about this. Think about this. In Paul's letters, he always asks for prayers. He talks about, you know, let intercessions be made, let prayers be made. Wouldn't you think, at least, Eli, that in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul talks about the departed in Christ, that at that point, he could have said, let us call on our brothers who've departed from this world. Let us call on them to intercede for us. He never mentions that. He doesn't mention it in 1 Corinthians 15. He doesn't mention it in 1 Thessalonians 4. And yet that would have been the most opportune moment for God to for Paul to mention the, the intercessory prayer of the dead saints. Hmm. So, so that's a major problem. Why do we need to ask the saints' intercession when we have a great high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for the saints and who is the mediator. Now, we're not saying, and I'm sure Eli, you agree with me, we're not saying you can't ask a brother or sister. You just said about your COVID experience, you know, we ask our brothers and sisters to intercede, to pray for you. That's fine. But there are no cases in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter where deceased saints are called upon to make intercession for the living. Mm -hmm. And so when we go to scripture, we, we, we don't see that anywhere in, in Scripture. And it's, isn't it very odd that all of a sudden, in the following centuries, this idea pops up, and yep. then there's purgatory. Now, the, East, the Orthodox Church doesn't believe in purgatory, but the Western Church, the, Ortho, the Roman Catholic Church does. But it's all based on this idea that, that they can hear you. So, you know, Peter can hear you. Mary can hear your prayers which would almost imply that they have this omnipresence attribute where they can be anywhere to hear these prayers. Mm -hmm. So this is why this stuff, it doesn't jive with scripture. And that is why I think Protestants have historically rejected it. Okay, that's very helpful. Now, my last question for you before we get into some of these questions, and they're, they're not too many questions, but there are a lot of people listening in. Um, it might be because a lot of people don't know enough about Eastern Orthodoxy. Yeah, know what not a lot, no. yeah. <laughs> but if the folks do have questions, please uh, send them in. I'm going to ask a last question here. So uh, suppose someone's listening to this discussion and they're saying, you know, I have some Eastern Orthodox friends or I have a Protestant friend who is um, kind of flirting with the idea of converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, what resources would you suggest someone uh, read study so that they can get a firm grasp on this position and be in a better position to kind of share uh, the gospel, uh, the biblical gospel yeah. with, with those folks. Yeah, I, I think one of the, I, and I think I saw this on your Facebook too, Eli, but uh, Through Western Eyes by Robert Latham uh -huh. yeah. is, is a great book. 
uh, and I, I think you you have it there in your library somewhere. Uh, through Western Eyes. That's it. That's a great book. Uh, it's written by from a reformed perspective, and Dr. Latham is a is a is a fair scholar. I've read that book actually, and his treatment of orthodoxy. And I studied orthodoxy uh, at university under an orthodox, well, an um, uniate, which is actually an orthodox priest that acknowledges the Bishop of Rome as okay. the leader. So they're, they're seen as they're seen as schismatics by the orthodox because okay. they. They're called Uniate. They've united with Rome. Anyway, but the Orthodox liturgy is the same. Uh, so anyway, he, uh, um, I studied with him, and um, and I can say that Latham is very is very fair uh, in his treatment. There's another book, and I don't have it here. It's downstairs, but there's another book called uh, Four Perspectives on on the Orthodox mm -hmm. Church. It's that's one of the, the counterpoints. Zondervan, yeah, that that's right? right. The Zondervan series, <clears throat> and. Uh, I think Michael Horton represents the reform side, and he does a very good, adequate job in responding and engaging with his orthodox interlocutors. So right. the, the four views on orthodoxy, Robert Latham's uh, through uh, through Western Eyes has very good material there. I think the website, monergism.com, also has a very good section sure. on, on orthodoxy as well. Okay. Um, um, if you want an orthodox source, uh, The Orthodox Church by Timothy Ware, is still considered, even though it was written in the 60s, it's still considered uh, a, a, a straightforward book, a very mm -hmm. good book on the subject. Yeah. So what I would say is get educated, uh, look at look at the, the arguments. And at the end of the day, what I always challenge my friends is to think this, is Christ enough? Is Christ sufficient? And, and that's not to do a disservice to the church. But at the end of the day, is Christ enough to redeem you? Do you need to be do you need to, to kiss icons, venerate icons, uh, uh, you know, baptize people th th three times in the name of each person of the Trinity and so forth? At the end of the day, is Christ enough? And I always point to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, where this man had nothing to show for it. He was guilty of sin. He rightfully deserved his punishment. But on his deathbed, if you will, of the cross, he looks to Christ, admits he's a sinner, knows that he's worthy of death, looks to Christ and tells him to remember him. And Christ promises them paradise the very same day without any works, bap no baptism, no sacraments, no mysteries, but faith in Christ alone is what saved them. And I think at the end of the day is, is the only reliable thing we have is the word of God. The scriptures mm -hmm. are God's eternal word. Um, the, the word of the Lord endures forever. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God endures forever. And if they do not speak according to this law, Isaiah 8.20 says, it's because there's no light in them. Our standard must be the word of God. The fathers of the church, great men of God, thank God for them, but they contradicted each other. They also made a lot of mistakes. Mm. So the only source that we have that is said to come from the mouth of God, proceeds from the mouth of God, are the Holy Scriptures. Yeah. And, and it's on that we need to take our stand. Yeah, and I'm so glad that it comes back to that that firm foundation of God's word. When, when I read uh, the Bible, uh, as, as you would know, that... The theology of scripture can be very complex and there are some interesting connections between this doctrine and that doctrine. But we really get down to the foundation that there is a 
profound simplicity to the gospel message that yes. when I look at religions like the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox perspective, there is this, uh, there, there is this, um, uh, how can I say this? The, all of the extra dross that is added on to the gospel, I, I think, makes that simple message we find in yes. Scripture obscured. Yes. Um, I like the yeah. way you put that, Eli, because the idea here is the idea of the dross or, or mm -hmm. think of it as think of it as a snowball. You know, you keep rolling it and it gets bigger and bigger mm -hmm. and then you make Frosty the snowman. Right. So the idea is we want to remove all of that dross, all of that incrustation. And we want to get back to the core. We want to get back to the source. That's what the reformers meant by ad fontes, going back to the source. So we got to get rid of all that, you know, incrustation, right? You want to get to that diamond. You got to remove all that hard coal around it mm -hmm. to get to that precious diamond. Right. So what we want is the precious word of God. And the other thing we need to point out is this. In the Orthodox Church, everything primarily is visual. You walk into an Orthodox Church and you are immediately stunned by the icons, not just the iconostasis at the front of the church that separates the people from the clergy, which again, there's nothing in the New Testament that calls for this. We're one in Christ. And if you look at the liturgy, the, even the, the structure of the church building, it's all based on the Old Testament tabernacle, the temple, <clears throat> the dividing, the, you know, the, the holy place, the holy of holy from the holy place. Um, I don't think Paul, Peter, John, James spoke at all about this as being part of the church. This developed over centuries. So what I'm saying is this, in the Orthodox Church, everything is primarily visual. So you walk in, you look up, you got these domes, you've got Christos Pantocrator, the Christ the Almighty, and then you see the front, you've got the Theotokos, the, the, the Madonna and Child, you've got Christ holding the Book of Life, and then you've got the angel Gabriel, the angel. Everything is visual. Same with the Roman Church. Everything is visual. It's all directed to the altar at the front. Now you go into some Protestant churches. Then they look pretty bland. They're pretty boring, right? And what is this? Depending on a genuine yeah. Protestant I mean, church. <laughs> churches that, you know, some old. Some of them like auditoriums. Even, you know. even Episcopalian churches, you know, they're very ornate, you know, Church of England. Sure. Um, but here's the difference. The focal point of God's saving message is not the visual. It's the audible. And so in Romans 10, 17, what did Paul say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or the word of God. So God has determined that the means by which he will save people is by the boring preaching of the word. That's right. The old geezer at the top there who's giving you the gospel, that is the foolishness of God that is greater than the foolishness of the world. That is the power of God described in the world's foolishness. So when you think about it, the means by which the gospel is spread and by which God saves his people is that his sheep will hear his voice and they will come to him. Mm. It's not the visual. It's not the aesthetics, which really, when you think about it, the Orthodox Church is very aesthetic. The priestly vestments, mm -hmm, you know, sure. the, 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 the bishop's uh, uh, crown and mitre and the icons uh, uh, painted on the walls and so forth. The, 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 the gospel is preached by the hearing. It's audible. And so the focus is on scripture, not on the raising of the Eucharist in the Roman Catholic Church or the bells and the smokes, you know, the smokes and the bells and 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 all that. So let's keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Let's not multiply, you know, let's not do the Occam's, 
you know, Occam's razor. Let's slice off all that dross, Eli. Let's get back to the basics and let's realize that it is the preaching of the gospel that is power to those who are being saved. It is foolishness to those who are being lost, uh, who are perishing. And that once again, the means by which faith comes is not by the visual. It's by the hearing, the hearing of God's word, not the hearing mm -hmm. of the elders or the church fathers, but the hearing of God's word. Amen. Thank you for that. And just a, a quick encouragement. It, it can be very difficult dealing with Eastern Orthodox folks and, and in defense of Eastern Orthodox folks, it can be difficult talking to Protestants. I mean, we, we believe that we have a true position and yeah. uh, but I do want to encourage people always. I know it's kind of a cliche at this point because those who do apologetics have heard first Peter chapter three, verse 15, a million times, but always remember that we are to interact with Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, atheists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness with gentleness and respect, but with a firm conviction standing on the truth of God's word, which Amen. is our authority. So thank you so much. <laughs> Eli, if I can just put a plug for my new book. Absolutely. It's kind, of, it's kind of related to our topic, but my new book just came out a couple of days ago. It's okay. called Early Christian Creeds and Hymns, What the Earliest Christians Believed in Word and Song. Uh, an exegetical theological study. Um, this book, in, in my book, I address the issue of the creeds as well. We go through, I go through the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. I go back to some of the fathers as well. Can we sneak uh, a peek of the table of contents real quick? Can you? Yeah, put that absolutely, absolutely. Um, the table of contents. Sometimes is, that's that's the main thing that will make someone purchase a book is to. Right. Oh, wait a minute. There's a chapter. Yeah, on it, it, it continues on the other side, but this is uh, some of the things that are covered there. Let's see. There we go. So let me just take that back a bit. So uh, what are creeds? I divide it into creeds and hymns. What are creeds? The Old Testament is the forerunner of Christian creeds, creeds in the New Testament. And then I deal with a number of creeds in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Christ. The uh, Christian Shema in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, the earliest Christian creed in 1 Corinthians 15. And then I deal with some of the hymns. A lot of Christians don't know this, but there are hymns embedded in the New Testament text. Hmm. There are creeds embedded in there. And, and notice we didn't have to wait. One of the points I make in my book, uh, Eli, is we didn't have to wait till Nicaea to, to give us creeds. Uh, we didn't have to wait till the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Uh, the New Testament already contains creeds. The Old Testament, you know, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Um, the Bible contains creeds. They're already there. And the councils of the church simply, uh, let's say, took them and magnified them. They elaborated. They expanded them. But the idea of Christ being one with the Father, homoousios, as Nicaea says. By the way, homoousios is nowhere found in the Bible. It's not even found in the Greek New Testament. Sure. But it's implied in Hebrews 1.3 that he is of the exact imprint, the exact imprint of the nature of God, of the Father. Yeah. Uh, and so I deal with that creed in that book. Um, I, what I'll do, Eli, I'll send you the link to the publisher. It, it's, it's on sale right now. Um, they can get it on Amazon as well. Is it available Amazon. on Kindle as well? Some people uh, like uh, not yet. It just it was okay. just released, so okay. I'm assuming it will be put on Kindle. Okay, but um, I'll send you the link to the publisher. And so uh, the endorsements are are you know we've got uh, uh, Robert Plummer from Southern Baptist. Uh, he endorsed it. Um, Lydia McGrew, as you probably know, who wrote the oh. book on the Eye of the Beholder, uh, Doctor. Uh, um, uh, Pierre Constant from Toronto Baptist Seminary and um, uh, James White wrote the foreword to this book. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So the, this book will help you take you back to the source and show you how the creeds are already formulated in the early Christian church. 
right. they believe exactly what we believe today about the Lord Jesus. So what, what was the title of that book? One more time for it folks. Who might early Christian creeds and hymns. Awesome. Early Christian creeds and hymns. Yeah. At any, at any moment in the future, if you write a book and you want to uh, get, do a plug or do a show to talk about just the book, you let Thank me you. know. I'm yeah. more than happy to promote your yeah, stuff. I'm, I'm writing another book, which is more dealing with the current affairs of our world. It's, it's entitled No King But Christ, The, okay. collapse, the collapse of Worldviews. Uh, uh, the collapse of worldviews in light of the Christian worldview, something along those lines. But right, I'll let you know when it's ready. Yeah, absolutely. And we can get together. Maybe we'll just talk about the book. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, well, I want more of your stuff out there. You're super helpful and down Thanks, to brother. earth and, and fun to listen that. to. There's a gentleman here. Uh, Aurelio says, Dr. Tony Costa is quickly becoming one of my favorite theologians. Right. Uh, Thank you. And, uh, I, I agree. You are definitely up there and, and uh, an excellent communicator. So, yeah. so let's take a few minutes and, and, and take yeah. some questions. Um, Got to go through some of the comments here, but there are some questions. If I do skip a question, I do apologize. I'm not trying to avoid you. Uh, <laughs> some people think I'm doing that when I miss their question here. Let's see here. There's actually some funny comments. I won't read them though, but uh, let's see here. Just give me a moment. I got to kind of sure. scroll through. Uh, let's see here. Okay, there. Okay, so here's a question uh, from Acts 2 Pentecostal. Question Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics like to use 2 Thessalonians 2.15 to try and disprove sola scriptura. How would you respond to their claim? Uh, when they use that particular yeah, that's those are the favorite go-to texts that they go to to show that uh, that tradition was part of the church's early authority. Well, if you allow the scripture to speak for itself, what Paul is saying is the word tradition there is the word that we get. It's a technical word that means the passing on of oral information. Mm -hmm. So instead of writing it down, you pass it down orally. Well, Paul says, don't forget the traditions that we deliver to you. But then he says whether in oral or written form. Well, obviously, what Paul had delivered to them was the gospel. And the gospel was communicated first, obviously, orally. You preach the gospel. Paul sure. planted a church in Thessalonica. And then when he left, he wrote to them. He says, remember what I said to you while I was still with you? And remember what I delivered to you. That's what the word tradition there means, something that's been delivered. What I delivered to you, either in word or in writing. And the only thing we, and notice it's in the past tense. Notice Paul doesn't say this is an ongoing tradition that will remain in the church. He doesn't call this a perpetual line that will continue throughout church history. He uses the past tense. It's something that he had already given to them. And so what had he given to them and what did he preach? Well, we know what Paul preached. He said, I care, I care to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. So we know whatever tradition Paul's talking about is the gospel and the gospel mm -hmm. message. So to say that this is talking about the Marian dogmas or it's talking about veneration, you know, kissing icons inside inside the church, uh, that is that is that is serious exegesis. You're reading into the scripture what is clearly out there. So knowing what we know about the Pauline letters, whatever he delivered to them in word, he confirmed in his writings. And what we know from his writings, it was the gospel that he gave them. 
Amen. Thank you for that. Uh, Austin Giles asks, uh, he's, I guess he's identifying himself as an Orthodox Christian, maybe. Uh, Orthodox Christian, I do have a good question. However, we'll be the judge of whether that's a good question or not. <laughs> yeah. Sola Tony. Sola Tony. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I do have a good question, however. Jesus constantly relied on Scripture, but this would have been the Septuagint. At what point did the New Testament become Scripture? Right. Well, let, let me just say something about the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it, that is the Old Testament version that the Orthodox Church uses today. The Old Testament version that we use today uh, with the Roman Catholic Church came from the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text we have today, which uh, I've, which uh, looks looks like uh, this. That's that's the Masoretic text, okay? Mm. So uh, Jerome felt that if anyone knew the Old Testament, it had to be the Jews because Romans 3, 4 says to the Jews, God gave his oracles. Uh, if the Jews don't know what the scriptures are, nobody knows. I'll tell you right now, if they didn't know, nobody knows because it was to them that God gave his oracles, his word. They were the ones whom God gave the covenants, the prophets, the revelations, and the Messiah came from them. So... Mm. Just because Jesus used the Septuagint, the Septuagint was regarded by the Jews just as authoritative as the Hebrew Bible. Because remember, the people of God were always translating. They didn't have a problem. They weren't Masoretic text only. They weren't MTO. Masoretic text only, folks, like the KGB only, you know. If it was good for the Apostle Paul, the King James is good for me. That's not what they were like. They believed that there was the Hebrew text. They believed in the Greek Septuagint. And then later you had the Targums, the Aramaic, the Aramaic uh, uh, commentaries on the Bible. So th th this is this is really, the, I don't know what the argument is being made here. We would agree with you that he did quote from the Septuagint. There are some quotations from the Masoretic text. For example, Matthew wrote the gospel to the Jews. In Matthew's gospel, some of his quotations are from the Masoretic text. And Paul, in, in the pastoral letters, also makes some quotations from the Masoretic text. Now, the question is, when did the New Testament become Scripture? We do know that in the New Testament itself, there is self-attestation that some of the New Testament was already being accepted. So, for example, 2 Peter 3, 16, 17, Peter talks about the letters of Paul. He says, some things are hard to understand in Paul. So if you don't understand Paul, don't feel too bad. Peter had problems with him, too. Peter goes on to say that the, the uh, unstable, the false teachers, distort Paul's letters as they do the other scriptures. Mm -hmm. Peter is placing Paul's letters in the category of scripture. And then in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes from the scripture, and he quotes the first from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, about, uh, uh, about not muzzling the ox, I believe it is, something along those lines. And the second one is... The laborer is worthy of his hire. I wonder where that comes from. That's a quote from Luke 10, verse 7, right out of the Gospel of Luke. Well, that's Sorry. not surprising because Luke was Paul's missionary partner. Of course he would know about Luke's Gospel. Luke was his buddy, his, his missionary buddy. So at least we know some of the Gospel, the, the Eucharistic sayings of Jesus. Paul says, what, what I received, I passed to you. And the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And, and Paul's rendition of the Lord's Supper matches the one in Luke. Well, again, surprise, surprise. So the New Testament canon, uh, most by the end of the first century, 22 of the New Testament books were there. They're already accepted. 
there were five outstanding books. There was questions about uh, Hebrews, James, uh, Revelation, Second uh, John, uh, actually also Third John, and also Second Peter. Uh, and so there was some debate over that, and, and and rightfully so. They wanted to know: Did this come from the apostles? Is this consistent? Uh, Hebrews was accepted uh, by the Eastern Church eventually. Then the West accepted it. Revelation was a little suspicious, you know, that apocalypse no. language. Yeah, you know, I mean, thank God we wouldn't have a Left Behind series if we didn't have the book. Right? <laughs> That's right. And so, and so eventually these books were accepted. Now, a lot of people say Athanasius is the guy who pinpointed the completion of the canon in 397. That's not true. If you go to the third century, the, the early mid-200s, Origen, in his commentary on Joshua, already produced for us the canon of the New Testament as we have it today. This was a hundred years, over a hundred years before Athanasius. And guess what, Eli? Origen didn't include the Apocrypha. Mm. Origen didn't believe the Apocrypha. So if you notice, anybody who knew anything about the Hebrew Masoretic text and studied Hebrew, they were the ones who fought against the inclusion of the Apocrypha. Origen, mm -hmm. Jerome, Melito of Sardis, it's not surprising. These guys says it doesn't belong in Scripture. You know why? Because they read the Hebrew Bible, they learned the Hebrew Bible, and they knew the Hebrews didn't have it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So the New Testament, uh, 22 of its books was already in by the end of the first century, and the other five were eventually brought in in the, uh, the second century. All right. Excellent. Excellent information there. Uh, Dylan says in a passing comment, but perhaps you could uh, uh, address this. He says, I'd find it incredible to argue that the early church was some form of proto-Protestant. That's just poor history. Yeah. Uh, how, how would you respond to something like yeah, that? Well, I mean, again, I, could, it, I mean, it'd be the same thing as saying that it, it would be incredible to argue that the early church was proto-Orthodox or proto-Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. We need to look at the New Testament documents for themselves as, as neutral as we can. Does the New Testament document say anything about venerating icons or pictures of Mary or the saint? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Does it say anything about priestly vestments? Nothing. Does it say anything about uh, in the church we have to have the separation of the clergy from, uh, from the laity? Nothing. In fact, Hebrews says that was all done away with in Christ. Sure. There is no more. The Holy of Holies is the very presence of God in heaven. So, I mean... The the I mean I respect this gentleman's uh, uh, statement here, sure. but the only way we're going to know what is proto proto means first. If we really want to know what the first Christians believed, we're stuck with the New Testament. And so when I look at the New Testament in Acts two forty two, I see that they were committed to the apostles' teaching. Where do I find the apostles' teaching in their letters in the New Testament? Uh, they broke bread, so they had the Lord's table supper. Yeah. They also prayed and they had fellowship. That sounds a lot like what Protestants do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when you think about the fact that um, that the apostles' teaching, I mean, the apostolic succession, I mean, I believe in apostolic succession, but what I mean by apostolic succession is that the apostolic succession is right here. Here's the apostolic succession right here, right here. Mm. It's not, you know, it's not Theodosius the first and the fourth and the fifth and, you know, Sophronius this guy and no, it's not Pope Pius the twelfth or or Pope Frankie in Rome. The apostolic succession is right here. I have the words of Peter. I have the words of Paul. I have the words of John. I have the words of James. These are their inspired words. 
Mm-hmm. Not what somebody said, oh, my, my bishopric goes back to St. Andrew or St. Philip. Really, uh, why go to this idea of apostolic succession chains that incidentally are made by the Church of England, by the Anglicans, and the Mormon Church also claims to have apostolic succession mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when we have the words of the apostles here in Holy Writ. Right. I'd rather go with their words than the words of those who claim that they're descended from them. Oh, me too. <laughs> Good point there. There's uh, a question by Sean. Uh, he says, uh, how would the Reformed respond to the objection about the perspicuity or the, the clarity of Scripture? Um, if I gave a Bible to someone who never heard of Christianity, how would he figure out what is needed? Yeah, I, I think that that could be answered in the fact that we've had people like that. For for salvation. There was another For was salvation. Another. Okay, for salvation. Okay. Um, I think John Wycliffe is an example of that. I think that people who picked up the Bible for the first time, there is no way you can walk away from it without knowing at least three things. I mean, I know it's going to sound like a child's nursery rhyme, but Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. And when people like Wycliffe and and others picked up the Bible for the first time, what they took away from it was Jesus Christ died for my sins. He rose again from the dead for my salvation. And it's true that the gospel message is so simple that a child can understand it. It's true. Unless you become like one of these, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, perspicuity of scripture doesn't mean that, therefore, you know everything in scripture. Of course not. There are some, there are some obscure passages like 1 Peter 3.18. What did Jesus do after he died? Did he go to a spirit prison of some sort? Or what exactly is he getting at? But what we do know is the simplicity of the gospel. John 20, 31, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the gospel message. And that is simple to understand for salvation. And so uh, God doesn't save us through mysteries, through coded books, like, you know, Dresden wrote that the Bible, there's a coded message in here. You can only understand it if you buy, you know, Hitler's mentioned in Isaiah. Uh, no, the Bible is not a crypto uh, magical book that we need to decipher like a Rubik's Cube. The Bible is clear in its main message, and that is we need a Savior. And that Savior died for us, and he rose again from the dead. And, and Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Awesome. Dr. Bob uh, says, what is the significance of the fall in the East versus the West? The EO conception of ancestral sin denies original guilt. How does this play into Romans 5? Yeah, the fall in the Eastern church is not really considered this big cataclysmic event that, that it is in the West. Uh, and, and so in the East, um, the idea there is that, is that Adam sinned. He, yes, he did something awful against God. But it wasn't, it wasn't a sin that would plunge his progeny into alienation from God. In other words, they don't believe in original sin, right? That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons, by the way, Eli, they don't accept the Immaculate Conception of Mary because the Holy Immaculate Conception of Mary means she was freed from the stain of original sin. Well, they don't believe in that. So they, they don't believe in the Immaculate Conception because it necessitates original sin. And, and therefore, in the East, the fall is not this horrible thing. That, I mean, it was bad, don't get me wrong, but it's not this cataclysmic thing that the Western church made it out to be. And the problem with Romans 5 is I really have not found a good commentary or a good treatment by any of the Eastern theologians on Romans 5. And that's where you got to read Michael Horton in his book, uh, Four Views of the Orthodox Church, where he challenges his Orthodox interlocutor why 
they don't face the ramifications of Romans 5. Romans 5, you got two federal heads. You got Adam, you've got Christ. And, and in Adam, you die. In Christ, you're made alive. Sin came into the world through the disobedience of one man and through the obedience of the, of the second man, eternal life and righteousness. So there's two federal heads there, both representing their people. And if you're in this federal head, you're going to die. And if you're in this federal head, you're going to live. So you need to be in Adam number two. Adam number one, not good. Adam number two, you'll be saved. Right? Sound <laughs> a little bit like Shailin there. But, but the, point, <laughs> the point here is, the point here is, orthodoxy has not really dealt with the ramifications of Romans 5. Hmm. They just don't. There's not a lot written about Romans 5, Galatians 2. Okay. Um, we have uh, just a few more questions. I mean, maybe two, maybe two of them. Uh, someone has a question that's unrelated, but might be interesting to you. Uh, I know this is unrelated, but can a reformed theologian like Dr. Costa ever review the show, The Chosen? They seem to be capitulating yeah. to Rome and its uh, theology. I'm not sure if you've yeah. seen that show. I, I, I've seen a couple of them. Um, it's, it's, it's worse than this. It's worse than that. It, they've actually capitulated to, to Mormonism. I, I've done a video. If you go to my channel, I did a video where I review uh the the dylan the, the the director said that he has mormons on set and and he's also getting input from the mormons mm -hmm. and so the the issue here is he actually said that that he doesn't see much of a difference between the jesus of mormonism and the jesus of the bible which which i almost fell off my chair when i heard that mm -hmm. and so what i did was i reviewed a video that he had with uh, i forgot her name now uh, she's a, a Christian a Christian sister who was interviewing him, and she was very concerned about these statements that he was making to the effect that uh, Mormons are pretty much Christians, that there's really nothing horrendous about their Christology. Um, so I, I'm not surprised if they're capitulating to Rome. They're even capitulating to Mormonism. Mm. Um, so if you got Mormons on site and, and, and giving you some advice on, on the director, giving advice to the director, yeah, that that's not good. Mm. All right, thank you for that. Uh, someone makes a comment here that might be relevant to something you said. Someone says, "I don't think the East is unified on original sin." So I guess the popular notion is that Eastern Orthodox folks reject original sin. I suppose the assumption here is, well, they're not unified on that. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, well, officially, officially, they they reject original sin. They don't acknowledge it. The Uniate, however, that is the Orthodox churches in, in the 17th century that join fellowship with Rome. They, they came under Rome's leadership. So they acknowledge the Bishop of Rome as their leader. They have accepted original sin. And that's simply because they've accepted the Bishop of Rome. But as far as I know, the Orthodox Church um, in general, and I think I would throw the, the, we didn't get a chance to talk about the Oriental Orthodox churches, like the Copts Copies. and the Syrians and the Armenians. Not the uh, Armenians. The not Armenians. the Armenians, the Armenians which are a people group, the Armenians, the Syrians, the, even in India too, and the Copts in Egypt, the, 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 the Byzantine church rejected them as heretics because they refused to acknowledge the Council of Chalcedon. Mm -hmm. And they were accused of being monophysites, only believing Jesus had one nature. Uh, so that, that's, a, I guess, a discussion for another day. Sure, but sure. Uh, they rejected as well. So the concept of the original sin uh, is not there. They 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 blame Augustine for this. They say Augustine is the guy who brought in this whole original sin business. Okay. But Augustine was simply reading Romans five. Okay. All right. Yeah. Very good. So this is the last question, Doctor Costa. Mm -hmm. you, you're doing excellent. This 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 discussion is chalkload filled with 
uh, information that is useful for folks. So if you are coming in late and just catching the tail end of this discussion, I mean, I know we've been going an hour and 44 minutes, but I highly recommend you go back and listen. Uh, Dr. Tony Costa has given us a lot of information to mull over and to use uh, in our individual context. So uh, here's the final question I'm taking here. And uh, uh, someone is asking, uh, why do you reject the essence energy distinction? Um, well, to me, I don't have a problem if we understand the idea of the ontological trinity, the, the very essence and nature of, uh, of God, and the economical trinity being the way God acts out in his redemptive purposes towards his people. So if we understand essence and energy in that context, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that a lot of folks, I mean, Gregory Apollomus was, was one of the spearheads of this, of this idea. And of course, he was he was part of the, the the mystical mystical school or the mystical movement, if you will, within the Orthodox Church. Um, I don't have a problem with it as long as we understand what do they mean by the energies, what do they mean by the essence. Um, one critique of the Orthodox Church is that God's essence becomes so transcendent that it almost becomes unknowable. And so there's a bit of Neoplatonic thinking there, like Plotinus. If you read Plotinus, Plotinus says the one is unknowable, it, uh, the one is indescribable, and so forth. But, but I think Deuteronomy 29, 29 gives us a very good balance here, right? When it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so there are secret things, right? I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, uh, I think it was late 90s, Eli, or I don't know, maybe you're just a kid, but but maybe that was the late 90s or early 2000s. I was, I was, in, high, I was in high school. Okay, okay. okay. Um, I'm only 39, man. Okay, I'm okay, okay. I'm just feeling <laughs> my age. But uh, you remember that movie Hidden Dragons? And uh, was it Hidden Dragons? And, oh, yeah, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden uh, Dragons. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah you know, it's it's like, and you ever notice in that movie, you never saw the dragons and the tigers because they were hidden and crouching. That's why you never <laughs> saw them. But but in this theology, the I think the idea is that you know, look, God's secrets are hidden from us. So His decrees, God's decrees, are hidden. Uh, there are things we don't know, and we will never know. But the things that are revealed belong to us. So the only thing we can know of God is what God has revealed. Right. If God never, if God did not reveal Himself, which is an act of grace, amazing grace. If God did not see fit to reveal himself, we would know absolutely nothing. And we would have no transcendental argument mm -hmm. if God did not speak right. his word into us or speak it to us. And so, uh, as I pointed out, I mean, the whole concept of the transcendental argument, the whole concept of presuppositionalism is the basis of truth and so forth. Well, truth is it rests in God, but that truth is communicated by word, right? Right. One of the persons of the Trinity is called the Word, the one who reveals and explains God to us and so forth. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if energies and, and essence and energies are used in that context, then I wouldn't have a problem with it. Sure. It's just that we want to know what our neighbor is saying on the other side. Right. We want to make sure we're, 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 we're at the same table, we're understanding the same words. And that's why I appreciate the fact, Eli, you first brought up the idea that we need to know what we mean by our terminology. Terminology is a, a doctor that doesn't know the difference between appendicitis and tonsillitis, you're in big trouble. <laughs> if you go in with an appendicitis and he takes your tonsils out, you're in trouble. So words have meaning and they are, they are vitally important.
Okay. And if it's okay, Dr. Costa, I would like to fit in this one question since sure. the, the primary focus of my show is presuppositional apologetics. And this is very much related to that sort of line of, of reasoning. So, and this will be the last one. So if anyone sure. uh, shows, you know, uh, puts a question in, I'm not going to take another one after this. I do apologize. Um, you know, Dr. Costa has been on marathon. Uh, this is his second show. Uh, how long did your pre, how long did the previous one go? Did it go long? Uh, I think it was just under an hour. Okay. See, I'm the one who steals. Look at that. We're, we're stealing well, we're, this time. We're in the Eastern time zone. So we're, that's right. I'm helping you accrue good work so that you go to that's heaven. That's right. I'm getting good merit. So it's just a, the thesaurus meritorium. So you're dispensing grace. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Wow. That went heretical real quick. All right. Uh, so here's the question. So given that interpretation is theory laden, this implies that your interpretation of scripture relies on an interpretive tradition. Does this not undermine the perspicuity, the clarity of scripture? That is a very good question. It yes. deals with presuppositions and yes. paradigms and things like that. Yes. Um, well, I think I think that every theory is interpretation laden. I mean, every theory. And, and I don't think theology is an exception, but but I think we need to, I mean, the word interpret comes from, from the word that means to read out, right? The, her, the word hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. Sure. And so what I, what I would say is yes, of course it, there it's 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 uh, it's it's theory laden, absolutely, no doubt about it. But what I think we need to do is we need to show whether our interpretation meets the facts. Does it back up? Is it backed up by the gram the grammar of a given text that we're using? Does mm -hmm. it line up with the thought of the author? Does it does it line up with? Is it consistent with with the text from which it comes from? I mean, anyone, you know, people always say, well, that's your interpretation, but everything is interpreted. I mean, even John 1, 18, it says that that no one has seen God at any time. There's that hidden God thing again, the Deus absconditus, but the, the, but the only begotten God, God, the only one, the, the monogenos Theos, who is in the bosom of the Father, it says he has interpreted him. Mm. He has exegeted, exegeted him, yeah. literally exegeted him. And so... The, the idea here is that how did Jesus interpret the Father? Well, he interpreted him by word, right, by, by, by action, by doing the works of the Father, by speaking the words of the Father, speaking those words in a context. Jesus didn't just go around, you know, speaking gibberish. He spoke words in context. And so what I would say is that everything is interpreted and, and everything is, yes, we all have biases. Uh, I've met people who say, well, you know, uh, you're biased. And, and I say, well, so are you. And he says, no, I'm not. Well, the person who says he doesn't have a bias, that's his bias. So at the end of the day, I think what we need to do is we need to look at our, our, our theories uh, and see whether or not our interpretations are being faithful to the text. Sure. Uh, and, and that's the only way we're, we're going to be able to, to, to be able to, to figure that out right. is deal with what we have. And, and does, does the evidence support the theory that I'm holding? Is it presuppositional? Is this the idea that God exists? Well, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, if there was ever a presuppositional statement, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's how it starts. You start with God and everything else flows down from him. Sure, sure. And so, uh, yeah, that's... I, I that's think I think, Dr. Costa, it is a bad argument against the perspicuity of scripture yeah. that people have interpretation. Yeah. So that the, exist, right. the existence of multiple interpretation uh, does not entail that, therefore, a correct interpretation is impossible to, to get at, right? That's correct. There, That's right. There, is a, there is an elementary presupposition that we make 
namely that language is sufficient for communicating truth. And mm -hmm. if the Bible is communicated to us via language, then it's sufficient. We can use tools of interpretation, right? Even though we're using frameworks and paradigms, we can use language and get at the meaning using right. hermeneutical principles and things like that. That is a presupposition that if rejected, that's right, you fall into a reductio ad absurdum. Of so course. if someone says, well, you know, words have to be interpreted and so we really can't know what words mean. Okay, well, you just use words to convey that. So the presupposition there is that words have meaning. And if right. words have meaning, then we can know what they mean. Sorry? Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. And the very, very important words have meaning is a presupposition. That's right. That's right. It's like the person who says there's no such thing as truth. Is that true? That's right. Is that statement true that you just made? Right. So it's like the it's like the person sitting on you know sitting on a branch and sawing off the branch while they're saying I'm not sitting on a branch. Appealing to church authority, infallible authority does not help you either. That's right. Since That's right. the authoritative interpretation of the church requires language to convey. Exactly. And, and how do you interpret that language? Yeah. Either the scripture is self-attesting or yeah. the interpretation of the church is self-attesting. Right. 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 So right. so that's an important thing to keep in yeah, mind. And, and you end up going in circles. That's what happens. You end up with a circle argument with and whose circle saves yeah. rationality. This is where you get into the whole right. transcendental element. Is that's it the right. circle that relies on the authority of God's word and God's word alone? Or is it the circle that relies on a tradition that is required for interpreting scripture? And you have this vicious circularity exactly. that makes that kind of circle fallacious. Yeah. Yeah, just look at if you have a gerbil or a hamster, just watch them on his wheel. That's what it looks like. You just keep running and going nowhere. That's right. That's right. Well, Dr. Costa, thank you so much. This has My been, pleasure. I've learned a lot just listening to you. And I'm sure folks um, gotten a lot of comments here that I have not read. Uh, folks have been uh, speaking very positively about this discussion. They're learning a lot. So Excellent. thank you so much, ladies. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, please go over to Tony Costa's YouTube channel and follow his content. He does interviews as well and teachings. Uh, it's definitely, um, if you've enjoyed what he's shared here, you definitely will enjoy his content and check out his book that's available on uh, Amazon, right? Yep. Amazon. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, guys. Um, I'm glad to be back and I'm feeling better. And uh, our next episode, um, we'll be doing a part two uh, uh, with the debate between uh, Sean, uh, Pastor Sean Cole and Leighton Flowers. So we're going to try to continue that. I have to um, put a new date on that so that we can continue. But I also will be um, doing uh, an episode with just myself walking through um, uh, Greg Bonson's work. There's a nice outline that summarizes the presuppositional methodology. And I'm going to um, uh, walk through that and kind of unpack some things um, for folks who are interested in the apologetic methodology stuff. Well, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Dr. Tony Costa. Until next Bye. time, take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.